what we're going to be talking about. We've been talking over the last uh, three weeks about um, um, trusting God when life is a mess. Um, and, and I think it's one of those things that, that everybody can relate to. It's, it's, I, 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 I've said it more than once, it's the morning I'm having, right? When, when everything seems to fall apart, um, how are we supposed to deal with God in that situation? Um, when, when life seems to, you know, literally disintegrate in front of us and the wheels come off the bus and people are sick or, or dying or, or we don't have enough money or, or even the car breaks down in the worst possible place, um, how do we deal with God in that? Um, how are we supposed to trust God when, when things seem to be, be a mess? Um, the first week, we, we talked about how, uh, how trusting God in the mess, how the mess is actually what makes us strong. That was from James 1. Um, we talked also about God's perspective on pain. We talked about man's perspective on pain. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit this week about um, where is God in all of it. Um, how many of you guys uh, have ever owned a coffee cup with that footprint, footprints poem on it? You know the one I'm talking about? You know, the guy at the end of his life. If you've been a Christian for more than five years, you've had a coffee cup or a t-shirt or a picture with it. You know, at the end of my life, I looked back and saw these footprints down the beach. And when it was the hardest is when there was only one set of footprints. And the man asked God, where, where were you? And God says, no, I was carrying you at those times. Um, which is all well and good, except like, it'd be nice if he'd let us know. <laughs> Any of y'all ever been in that spot where like you're thinking, okay, where are you? <laughs> you know, could you tap me on the shoulder? I'd like a burning bush, maybe. <laughs> Stick your head out of the clouds. <laughs> even even like a little miracle would be nice. Um, it always reminds me of uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, where where uh, the the father asked God, "Couldn't you give me a little fortune? <laughs> you know, just a little bit, God? Couldn't you throw a little bit my way?" Um, have any of y'all ever found yourself in that spot where you back up and you say, "All right, God, where are you? You know, could you could you give me a hand?" Um, I read an interview with uh, um, with uh, uh, Richard Dawkins. Have you guys ever heard of Richard Dawkins? He's he's an atheist, uh, world renowned atheist uh, biologist, and he wrote several anti God books. and And in the course of his career, he's done a number of interviews. and And I read this line, and it jumped out at me. He said. Uh, he was he was asked by this interviewer, "What will you do if you die and you encounter God? Like, what are you going to do then?" And he says, "Well, the first thing I'm going to do is ask God, why did you hide so well?" Um, which I'm guessing ain't going to be the first thing he's going to say. I'm just saying, like, I'm I'm guessing, but I'm I'm guessing that that ain't going to be it. Um, where is God sometimes? Why is he quiet sometimes? Um, it's one of the most common complaints you hear from folks who struggle with their faith or, or who struggle with times of difficulty is, where are you? Now, this is a nasty hard topic. I'm not going to lie, and I'm not going to cover all of the stuff there is to talk about with it in one sermon, or else we'd be here all day. And it makes I said something about falling off the stage and I have something to 
There it goes. Now I have something to trip over. Um, hopefully this is temporary. Wow, what kind of morning is this? Maybe we should pray again. I... <laughs> um, this is, again, a tough question, right? Um, it's a tough question we're not going to be able to like thoroughly answer. I, it's just not possible. I could probably do a 15-part series, and I wouldn't hit every possible topic. There have been volumes written about this. Um, but I'm going to kind of deal with one element of it. Um, and I'm going to start with a story, okay? Uh, there was a philosopher um, from the 1700s. His name was uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and he wrote this parable um, about a king, right? And this, this king is the most powerful king in the world. And, and he's so powerful that other kings come and pay him tribute. And, and everywhere he goes, it's his, his domain, right? Everything belongs to him. And, and one day this king is, is walking on the battlements. You know, you get castles and they've got that little walkway around the top. That's the battlements. He's walking around on his battlements, sort of surveying his domain. And, and as he's doing this, he looks down and he sees a maiden doing laundry outside of her house. And that's something that would naturally attract you to a woman in the first place. She's doing laundry. And so he, she catches his eye. Hey, that was wrong of me, huh? <laughs> um, and he thinks, wow, she's a pretty good-looking gal, and she's doing laundry. And he watches her for a little bit, and then he, he goes on and he starts walking again. And, and a couple days later, he's walking past the same spot, and he glances down and he sees her again, mowing the lawn. And he says, wow, that's a great sign in a woman, <laughs> mowing the lawn. And she's still a pretty good-looking gal. And he watches her a little longer. And then he catches her again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And before long, the king realizes that he's spending more and more time, like, coming up with excuses to catch a glimpse of this gal. And he watches her. And then one day he comes to this realization, I've fallen in love with this girl. Now, this is a simple problem, right? Which any man who falls in love with a woman and is trying to figure out how to like get her to pay attention knows this isn't a simple problem. But, but the king, being king, says this is, this is a simple problem. And he says, I'm going to bring her in here. I'm going to marry her. And so he gets the royal entourage together and, and with the trumpets and the carriage and everything else. And he, he, he sends them out. And, and he says, just go pick her up and bring her back. And, and they start moving, and he hears the fanfare start up, and the big golden-crested carriage starts moving, and he, he thinks about it a second. He says, wait a minute, this is a problem. Now, if that carriage goes out there and picks that woman up from her, her like peasant home and brings her into my castle, and she stands in front of me, and I say, hey, I'm in love with you, I'm going to marry you, is she going to have any choices? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, how is she going to look at the castle and look at me and all my wealth and opulence and then say no? <laughs> I mean, that's a problem. I mean, for most men, that wouldn't be a problem. For this king, he, he, he's after this woman's love. He says, well, wait a minute, I want her to love me. I've got servants. I want her to love me. He says, that's not going to work. And so he, he sits down and he puzzles over it for a little while. And he says, well, if the castle and the trap, trappings of being king are going to be the problem, I'll go to her. And he hops into the carriage, which is still lined up, and the fanfare fires up, and they head out the door. And they're winding through the village toward her home. And as they're winding along, the peasants are hearing the fanfare. And they're coming out, and they're, they're kneeling down as the king's carriage passes by. And, 
And he, he sees her come out and kneel down with everybody else. And he has this moment of horror and he says, wait a minute, if I stop and get out, you know, <laughs> and bring her into the carriage, is she going to be able to say no to me? Or is she going to have to marry me? And he says, oh, that ain't going to work either. And he stops and he puzzles over it and, and he thinks it through and thinks it through and thinks it through and he realizes that because of who he is, no matter what, this maiden can't fall in love with him on her own because of who he is. It's going to get in the way. Um, this is a problem that we see God encounter throughout the scriptures. Do I have a regular microphone? I'm starting to walk and I'm getting nervous. Is it done? Do I have batteries? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is so disjointed. Um, Yes. Is it working? Great. Um, this is a problem that, that God kind of encounters throughout the scriptures. He's so big and he's so out there that when people encounter him, what are they going to do, not believe? I mean, take, for example, the Exodus, right? The, the Jewish people, they get, out of the prom- or they get out of slavery in Egypt. They get out into the desert. And how do they know where to go? They have a big pillar of fire in front of them, right? <laughs> and then at night, there's a big or a pillar of smoke. And then at night, there's a big pillar of fire, and they just have to follow that pillar of fire. So if you stop and say, well, I don't think God exists, tough to miss him, right? He's right there. And he talks with folks, and there are earthquakes when he talks with folks. It says that Moses went and talked with God, and when he was done, he glowed like a light bulb. It didn't say light bulb. They hadn't been invented yet. Um, That was an ericism. Um, but he glowed when he was done. How do you approach a God like that and deny that he exists? Like, how does a, a, a Richard Dawkins come along and say, well, why are you hiding, God? He's like, nope, I'm right here. See, right here. Um, but then we encounter a new problem. Um, how did the Jewish folks who could see God every day, this is a, an interactive part, how did they do like with obeying God and being good with him? They didn't. It's like God being there kept them from being good almost. Um, we see this like they get to the promised land. God has conquered enemies. He's given them water in the desert. He's given them food out of nowhere. They arrive at the promised land and God says, all right, go in there. And they're like, man, the guys who live there look pretty tough. I don't know that we could beat them. How about if we stay here or go back and be in slavery again? And God's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I've beaten everybody who's gotten in your way. Just go. Nope. Sorry, we're not going. God says, okay. Then you're going to stay. You'll stay in the desert until you're all dead. And your kids will go into the promised land. And they're like, oh, we're sorry, we'll go now. No, don't go, you'll get your butts kicked. Nope, we'll go. And they cross the river, get their butts kicked, and go running back. It's like they were trying not to obey. <laughs> um, my favorite is, is manna. You know what manna is? It's <laughs> Manna actually is a Hebrew word. It sort of means, what is this stuff, right? When the Hebrews are in the desert, it was a creative name. What is this stuff? Um, <laughs> when the Hebrews are in the desert and God gives them food to eat, he gives them manna. It's this stuff that tastes like coriander seeds or something, and it's out on the ground, and they gather it up, and they eat it. And they've got food, and they have food in the desert where they should starve to death. And what do they do? Complain there's no meat. <laughs> And when they complain there's no meat, God finally gets tired of them complaining. He sends them birds to eat, and then they get tired of the birds, and they start complaining about that. 
And what do they say the whole time? God, we were better off as slaves. Remember, we could fish back then, and there was so much food to eat. God's presence turned them into spoiled children. Anybody ever had a spoiled child? Don't raise your hands or point. (laughs) God was always there. He met their needs immediately. They never had opportunity to doubt, and they never grew up. Um, It goes even further, all right? So Solomon, God approaches Solomon, says, Solomon, what do you want? He asks for wisdom. God says, that's such a good request, I'm going to give you everything. And what does Solomon do? Finds a bunch of wives who are pagan, starts worshiping pagan gods, because, well, God hasn't given me enough already. God's presence was right there. And Solomon couldn't grow up enough to be obedient. And it gets worse. You read the entire Old Testament where God is constantly there. There are earthquakes and fireballs and, 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 you know, giant glowing pillars of God's power. And they never grow up. They stay spoiled children. I, I'm trying really hard not to talk about Abby. <laughs> but having a baby, how many of you guys have raised small children? Part of getting them to grow up is making them do stuff. I'm, I'm resistant to this, but my wife makes Abigail put dishes in the sink. I just want to do it for her because it's easy, right? It's a lot harder to say, all right, you pick that up and you put it in there. Um, oftentimes, folks are critical of God in the Old Testament. By the way, this is a side note. Because they say, look, God gives these rules, and then when they don't follow them, he actually punishes them. Yeah, and? That's how you make people grow up. And they still never grow up. We're going to be in... Um, John, you find that, John chapter 6. I had to look over my shoulder and see if it popped up there. I didn't think it would. (laughs) All technical problems. Um, John chapter 6, what's going on in this chapter is Jesus is out teaching. um, And and they're in the desert, and he feeds 5,000 people with what? several loaves of bread and fish, right? There's no food to eat, so he feeds everybody. He miraculously reproduces food. Um, and um, they're so impressed. The folks are so impressed. They're, they're about to make him king, and so he heads off into the wilderness to pray. Um, that night, he comes back, and he goes to catch up with the disciples who've hopped in a boat and are out on the water, and he starts walking across the water, which is one of those things Jesus would do sometimes, and he gets out there, and Peter says, hey, if it's really you, let me get out and walk to you. Peter gets out. He's standing on water. What does he do? He freaks out, and he starts to drown, and Jesus saves him. Again, does this sound familiar? See it right there, and what does he do? Doubts immediately. (laughs) Well, this can't be happening. Sink. Um, He gets to the other side. The next morning, he doesn't let Peter drown, by the way. I forgot to include that. So the next morning, they're on the other side of the lake. We're going to pick it up from there. That is uh, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking him. So they wake up in the morning and they say, wait, he's gone. And they go looking for him. Make sense? I mean, the guy made 5,000 people's worth of food out of like a handful of loaves of bread. Like, this is a guy you want to keep up with. So they wake up the next morning, he's gone, they go looking for him. 
When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because of because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures into eternal life, which is the son of which the son of man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So they're like, Hey, when did you cross? And he says, Hey, you're not even looking for me because of me. You're looking for me because I fed you, right? I mean, it's a pretty straight accusation. It's also not very polite if you think about it. Jesus is kind of in your face at times. Um, Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who who he sent. He says, all right, all you have to do, right? They're like, well, how do we do what God wants? He says, just believe in me. Very simple, right? Is this a complicated request? Believe in me. That's it. And they're in sort of this Old Testament situation. Jesus has performed a huge miracle. Ain't no doubt in it, right? I mean, you could try to doubt it, but when you're full and you were hungry earlier and there was no food and then suddenly there was food, this is a big one. Um, it's a tough one to miss. And they're there. They say, well, what do we have to do? He says, believe in me. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? Our our for, excuse me, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So catch this. They saw a miracle. They come looking for him. Jesus says, hey, believe in me. They say, well, you're going to show us a miracle? You know, our forefathers, they had bread. How about, you know, you make with a buffet again? I mean, that's what they're asking for, isn't it? It's not even as though he hasn't given them a sign already. They've already gotten a sign, but they want another one. Do they want another one so they can believe? No, they want another one because they're hungry. (laughs) Because it's easier than going out and buying their own food or traveling somewhere to get more food. Jesus is handing out free bread. So here's the trick. It's oftentimes the case that folks who are looking to say, well, I don't believe, but if God would just give me what I want, I will. I don't believe in you. You feed me some bread again, I'll give it to you. I don't believe in you. You jump out and show me your face, I'll believe. Um, God, if you just fix this situation, you know, show your face, don't make me go through this tough time, then I'll believe. But God doesn't work that way. Actually, there's a comparison I keep reading where um, Jesus is out in the desert fasting and Satan comes to him. And what's, what's Satan say to him? Like he says, if you bow down to me once, I'll give you anything. Right? Give you anything if you bow down to me once. What's going on here? The people are coming to Jesus and they're saying, give us what we want and we'll, we'll believe. We'll worship you. We'll follow you. We'll do anything. Just give us what we want. Is that faith? No, it's kind of a barter system, right? <laughs> it's, it's not love. If I go to my wife and say, honey, I will love you forever as long as there is a sandwich waiting in front of the TV when I get home from work every night. Is that love? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, she says no. <laughs> Craig disagrees. <laughs> His wife's not here, though, so he can disagree. <laughs> He's not here to ask permission. Um, <laughs> The trick, all right, so, so the trick here is that again, Jesus' divinity, 
right? Jesus' miracle performing, it's produced the same results. It is credibility for him. That's why Jesus performed miracles. If he hadn't performed miracles, folks would say to him, hey, you're just some guy, right? Um, he performs miracle to give credibility. But when those miracles don't produce faith, there's no point to them. It's the difference between growing up and staying a child. Um, we believe when it's difficult because we grow up, because we mature in faith. Um, sometimes God isn't visible when life is hard because if he was visible, it wouldn't help us grow up. I remember um, in college the first time um, I, I, I had a car breakdown. And it was not like the first of very few times. It was the first of many, many times. And I remember sitting there in this parking lot with this broken down car. And I'm in Chicago and my folks are in California. And there's no one around. And and I'm sitting there in this broken down car and I had to grow up real fast, right? I did. I had to take care of my situation. Does that mean that like my parents weren't technically there to help me? Of course they were, because they paid for the car, obviously. They, they paid for my AAA service. They paid for a lot of things. In the same way, there are times when stuff falls apart, we've got to trust God. But God isn't going to stick his face out necessarily to save us. Is he going to carry us? Yes. Is he going to carry us giving us hints all the time? Not necessarily. Sometimes God is silent because it helps us grow up. Um, is he always silent? I don't think so. I think you could probably ask Ross this week whether or not God is always silent, and he'd probably give you a resounding no. God is sometimes really loud, right? Sometimes God gives you miracles. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't because it's time to grow up. It's time to grow in faith. It's time to trust when we don't see. Um, actually, this argument between the Jews and, and Jesus keeps going. Um, and they keep asking him for stuff. And Jesus kind of gets a little more in your face. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Again, what are they asking for? Breakfast. <laughs> Are they going to get it? No. Because they're trying to fill their stomachs, not their, not their souls. They're missing the point. Um, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So he says, listen, I'm that bread, right? It's me. God sent me. This is what you're after. And they start complaining, 41. The Jews grumbled at him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say that he came from heaven? So they back up and they're like, wait a minute. We know this guy. We know where he came from. How could he say he's from God? They didn't ask that question when he was feeding them, did they? They didn't ask that question when he was healing sick people, did they? They asked that question when? They didn't get what they wanted. It's immaturity, right? Anybody ever heard a teenager yell out, it's not fair? Is that usually a product of having no idea what fair is? <laughs> or no idea how the world works? That's what these guys are doing. They're saying, hey, hey, it's not fair. Give us what we want. Because that's what fair usually translates into, right? 
I want what I want, and I want it now. Difficulty produces maturity. Going through hard times makes us strong. Trusting God when we can't see him builds faith. Um, I got three lines that I'm going to add on to this. All three are from Jesus. They all actually come from, um, two come from the end of this passage. A little further on, um, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The, of the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken are, are, to you are from the Spirit and are life. So Jesus says, listen, your flesh, your effort, what you want isn't going to make you grow up. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to do it. Right? That was verse uh, 63, for those of you who are trying to keep up. He then in 65 says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. He's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit's making you grow. Not your eyes, not your flesh, not what you want. It's the Holy Spirit in you. God moves, we grow. It's not always easy, but God knows what's best for us whether we want to believe it or not, right? In the end, um, I, I started out with a story about this king, right? Um, the king who fell in love with the maiden. In, in Kierkegaard's story, he gathers his advisors up, and he sits with them, and he discusses all day and all night how to fix this problem. And at the end of the discussion, he uh, gets up, takes off the royal robe, takes off his, his ring, his authority ring, puts the scepter down on the table, walks out the front door. And on the way, he stops a beggar, and he trades his clothes for the clothes with the beggar, right? Like he trades clothes with a, with a homeless man sitting in the street, and he goes off to win the woman he loves. Because as long as he's king, there's distance. As long as God is up there, there's distance. God's problem with distance is solved in Jesus, Right? God steps out of heaven and he puts on the skin and the clothes of a man. He says, hey, I'm going to be with you. This is my solution. How do I trust God when life is difficult? I look to Jesus. Jesus suffered. I can suffer and get through it. Because Christ promises that he'll be with me. Um, This is God's solution. It's not to leave us hopeless and alone. It's to give us hope by becoming one of us by standing with us, by being literally in the room with us at one point. Um, And he's not with us like physically today, but he provides us a reminder. Um, The night that Jesus was betrayed, I'm going to call two of the elders forward actually at this point. Brooke, can I get you, Larry? Um, On the night Jesus was betrayed, the day that he went to the cross, um, he he gathers up his disciples and he says to them, he says, listen, um, He says, this is my body, and he breaks bread, and he hands it out to him. He says, this is my body. It's going to be broken for your sins. Whenever you gather up, eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, And this is part of how we remember Jesus in our hard times, is by sharing in communion. I think there's a second gatherers. Those of you who are guests with us, um, we all we require in the Church of God to share in the Lord's Supper is um, that you believe in Jesus.